Ladies and gentlemen, you're now tuned in to the High Culture Podcast, where we bring the mind of the divine into our times. I'm your host, Sheree James, and my co-hosts, Terrence Frederick and Jonathan Austin. Do me a favor, show us some love. Grace and peace, everybody. It's a blessing to be here with you again for another lovely weekend. Uh, We are blessed to be here and to spend your Sabbath with you. Uh, We have a great show today to continue on with with some great conversation. And we pray that the wisdom of God is going to flow through these dialogues um, so that you and your households are edified. We want to just bring you peace, bid you peace from the kingdom of heaven. We want to bring you, uh, we bid you health and strength from the Father of Lights. We know there's a lot to be concerned about in our society right now. Um, Some of you may have some level of fear or just concern. And so we speak the peace of God over you and your households. And without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and uh, just go ahead and check in with my brother so we can get into this content for this week. Grace and peace, guys. How is everybody doing? What's going on with you, Jonathan? All is well. Grace and peace. All is well. Just feeling blessed. It's been a real, real good week. Uh, had some time to relax a little bit. So feeling refreshed. Um, ready to get into it. That's what's up. I'm glad to hear that. How's it going for you, Terrence? What's going on with you? Grace, Grace, all is well. Just uh, recently celebrated birthday. So I'm glad to be alive in the land of the living. And I'm I'm encouraged to know that there's greater ahead of me than before me, than than what happened in the past. I just I appreciate his goodness and his mercy. And I hope all the people, all the listeners are well, too. That's grace. That's peace. I'm very excited to hear that. Um, and listeners, again, we, we just extend the grace of God to you. Well, uh, we got a lot to talk about today. And so we want to go ahead and jump into our very first segment uh, for today for the culture. Yeah, that's right. We better jump into for the culture. So there's a plethora of things that we could talk about in this segment today. But I want to get into this conversation. I know that many people are right now are protesting cancel culture. We hate it. And um, and I'm, I'm not saying that I disagree with that. I think that cancel culture can be untamed. It can be a lot of groupthink. It can be unleashed on people for very personal vendettas. But then there's a place that I think that maybe it could be useful. And ultimately, what I'm talking about within cancel culture is the cry for accountability uh, for, for our public figures, uh, for those that sit on, on in seats of influence, Um, For those that are leaders in various sectors, I think that there is a time and place where those persons should be held accountable for things that they do. Um, And even if it's not something they directly do, they represent something that is greater than them. So they have to be mindful about that. And I'm saying that because there was a headline that recently came out uh, concerning the the leader of the Hillsong movement, uh, pastors Brian Houston. Um, he is the senior or global leader of that movement. They have, I don't know, hundreds of locations, including the United States. That ministry has about 150,000 members. 
um, globally that they are accounted for. And so a headline recently came out that he was facing charges for allegedly, uh, this is allegedly, let me make sure I say that again, this is allegedly uh, basically concealing uh, or being in the know that a, a man had sexually assaulted or um, molested a young boy at seven years old. And I guess in his position as a pastor, as a leader, he had come into the knowledge of that. At least that's what the accusation is. And um, he just kind of swept it under the rug and allowed the gentleman to retire, you know, without interruption. And so those charges are being brought about that. And so, of course, I don't really want to belabor talking about Brian Houston because, again, he is due, um, he, he is owed due process before we consider him guilty. But the truth is, we know these stories are pretty regular in the context of church where we see and uh, we've heard stories where people have been molested and raped and assaulted and all kinds of violations have happened to them in the context of a local church, maybe not by the senior leader, but someone on their staff, or maybe it was a member that might've been a relative of them. And they concealed those things, one, maybe to sustain their reputation, um, so the church name wouldn't be marred, or just for the personal relationship they had, or maybe they had things going on in the background um, that they didn't want to be brought forward. But those types of things make the church look culpable, like we aid and abed criminals when when heinous crimes are committed against children and and young people and and women and and men, and nothing is being done about it by the people who are supposed to be the gatekeepers, the shepherds. And so I think there's a lot to be said about that. But first, let me throw to my brothers and just get your 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 initial take on that. Like, what is your position, or how do you feel about not just Brian Houston's story, but you know, just the relevance or the frequency in which we hear these types of things happening in the church? <clears throat> Jonathan, uh, yeah, it definitely represents a black eye for the church, um, especially for those people who are not necessarily with like ingrained within the church. And so you get a lot of those stories about people who've been damaged, people who've been abused in a place that's supposed to protect you. And then when the people who are over that place don't protect their members, don't protect people, it is a black guy on the church. Um, it is a black guy on the church. And I think the lack of accountability kind of ushered in council culture. Because where accountability is lacking, something has to come along when people feel like something has to happen. And the unfortunate thing about that is cancel culture has kind of taken that place. Um, because I, I'm not a fan of cancel culture. I, don't, I believe that with true accountability, a person doesn't need to be canceled. They need a true accountability brings restoration. And so that is my big problem with cancel culture. But it, it's not. Um, and we know that in our faith, you know, we're, we're in the business of restoring. We're in the business of building people up. And then the issue with cancel culture is it's very, very pointing out what you did wrong and wanting you to sit in it and wanting you to seep in it and wanting you to be identified with what it is you did wrong or what you perceive to have done wrong, as opposed to trying to educate and help and restore individuals. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think there should be more confrontation culture than cancel culture. Um, let's deal with it. Let's address the issue. There are scriptures that talk about how issues should be addressed. I think it is different when you're talking about um, crimes or um, a distinction between crimes and just moral failure of that individual. Um, so I do see a distinction there. But nevertheless, even still, 
um, there should be more confrontation, more calling to account. And the, I think the intent should be to bring purification to the church or, and to the leadership and not this, not to bring about some kind of justice from the seats or whatever. Not so much, uh, we're going to judge you and we're going to condemn you or we're going to whatever. But now let's get this thing straight because we believe you to be a real man of God. We believe in the works that you've accomplished and all that. In the same way Paul called Peter to account because of his hypocrisy, that's how that should go down more often than not. I think you both bring up some uh, really good points in terms of well, what Jonathan, what you said about the church has to balance out being restorative and not just critical. Um, and I think the balance of that is what Terrence brought out being, having the confrontation. Cause I think that we do a lot of sweeping under the rug and it's, it's kind of like, it's not out of any type of, uh, bravery that that's done. You know, it's, it's really cowardice because people don't want to mess up relationships. You know, people want to maintain positions. So generally that's a lot of reasons, a, a lot of the motivation for, uh, not addressing issues. But if we want to be, if we want to stand as an authority in the community and we can't take care of the things that are happening within our own house, within our own fold, how will the world take us seriously? You know, we, we haven't so many accusations that are coming from within. We don't even have enough time to address the things that people are misunderstanding on the outside. We don't, we have far too many victims from within now defuncting from the faith because they were not protected and, it, and it's, I'm not saying that it's the, the pastor or the senior leader's fault that someone else in their, their service or their within their ministry, you know, did something heinous against another person. But the response to it is very important. Your response to it is very important. And we just have to do a better job with accountability from within. I mean, we just have to. There's no way around that. And if we want to be effective and we want not just to be effective ongoing, but if we want to be effective in bringing healing and restoration to the present generation i think that, that a lot more of that has to be done or as we said offline what tends to happen is if things fester and time goes by and you think that you're hiding and you're concealing something eventually it all comes to the light and everything is way more intense the judgment is way harsher your, your consequences seem way more punitive and it's a lot harder to recover from those types of situations the restoration process seems almost impossible because not only did you do something wrong, but you went out of your way to hide it. And most likely hiding darkness only allows for more grotesque things to grow. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like more germs growing in darkness. And so if you're, if you, if you having issues with sin, um, if you're having uh, heart issues that are causing you to do those things, you need to get that worked out because that becomes more of an issue. Um, especially I'm talking about those who understand the spirit realm, you know, those things only continue to become more darkened and you just, you will continue to flow in that. And so I'm just going to beseech our listeners, whoever, wherever you are, if you're a leader, if you're a person that has a voice, if, if you are a protector of any kind, a gatekeeper of any kind, um, and you know that there are things that are going on that are inappropriate in the church, wherever you are, make sure you speak up. Don't, don't be one of those people that conceal things that can harm people down the line because you are going to be held accountable for that as well. And I'm not just saying that to be like, be afraid. I mean, you should, but I'm saying that think about the people that are being hurt in the process. Um, that's really my take on that. Um, I could probably go into some other areas, but accountability is necessary, especially in these types of situations. 
Brothers, do y'all have any additional thoughts on that topic? I think, but I also think that leaders um, need to think, I think they have a lack of understanding about how much control is really had in confronting whatever it is that's going on. You take power, you take control over whatever the thing is when you confront it, when you do have that confrontation so that you can figure out whatever it is as opposed to trying to sweep it under the rug because now you give it opportunity to develop legs and then to develop arms and then to kind of develop a life on its own. So when you do have to confront it, now you're confronting a massive beast when you could have eliminated that thing a while ago just by being confrontational, being steadfast and just going right at it so that you can deal with it. And I also think, you know, one thing that we expect our leaders to do is always remember whose they are over who they are. And a lot of times it's pride that'll make you sweep those things under the rug. Um, you don't want people to think a certain thing or you don't want that image to be put upon whatever it is that you built. And so you don't want that thing to crumble because you spent so much time on it. And, but it's crumbling under the foundation because you have that that issue that you never address. You know, uh, cracking the foundation can bring the whole house down. So it's, might as well just address the crack before it becomes something that can just tear down your whole foundation. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the other issue, I know you mentioned pride, but also, uh, Sheree, you mentioned fear. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about relationships, like when it's somebody close to you, a relative, something like that, we just think about it just on a just basic level. Say you don't have a church or say you don't have anything like that, but you just have a family member. Maybe that family member raised you up or you're very close to them and some scandal has happened regarding them, some shame that would be on them. You know, I think it's a human or natural desire to want to take care of them like, OK, you did wrong, but I don't want you to be put out there on front street like that. I want to try to find some kind of way to um, deal with you separately from, you know, the impact that it would have on the rest of the people. And a lot of times with family, they'll say, if I got to choose, I'm choosing family over these people. And so you have all these other dynamics, not to say that it's right, but that's the context. A lot of times that people find themselves saying, should we handle this? What they would say discreetly, which I want to highlight again is a distinction between covering up crimes. But even with moral issues like can should we handle this discreetly and deal with this here or do we need to make it public? Because sometimes. Uh, making it public exposes other people that did not even know anything about it to it. And that could also influence them just the fact that now they know about it. It may still need to be addressed, but sometimes people try to contain it. Uh, and those are some of the reasons why, um, not only because of what it would do to them and their personal ministry, but also what it would do to their loved ones. And it, they try to cover them in that kind of way. And you know, in most cases, it's not a good way to do it, but I understand why it's done. Oh, yeah. I think that that's those are all both relevant points. I I think that, uh, you know, I know people will go to the scripture in Galatians where it talks about, you know, love covers a multitude of sin. Um, and but there's a difference between covering a multitude of sin and covering up. <laughs> that, that's not it's a very different thing that's happening. And then I know some will say, you know, the Bible says, you know, if your brother's overtaken by a fault. Ye which are spiritual, you go restore him in a spirit of weakness, but consider yourself lest you also be overtaken. And I know people will use that um, in addition. And I think that I think that there is a all that has to be done in a delicate balance because I'm talking about crimes, not just moral failure. I think that when a crime is committed against a person, you do want to apply biblical, uh, you know, a biblical precedent of how to deal that within the body. 
But you also have to take into consideration uh, the legal fallout, everything that can happen because of what happened to the person. And so it's not a need to try to make everything super spiritual. Some things are practical. If you have a person molesting children in your church, this is not a time to try to like debate what you get them out of your church. Like you get them away from that's just, you know, come on, y'all. We got to take care of we got to take care of those that have been given into our care. I mean, as Jesus says, it'll be better for you if you hung a millstone around your neck and threw yourself in the lake if you caused harm to come to the little one. So just take that and take that into consideration. And also leaders, one other thing I'll say is if you need to go get some training of how to deal with these type of delicate situations, I advise you to do that because I know that some people make decisions, you know, the wrong choice because they don't have the training or like know how to respond in those types of situations if you need to go get some training on counseling and uh, uh, decision-making and, you know, whatever it is that you might need to do, I would suggest that or partnering with some type of a social worker. You might have those people in your membership and seeing if those persons would like to, you know, lend their ser- services um, to your ministry as a, on a consultation type of basis. Um, any of that, all of those things will be helpful because I know like those, all of these situations could be touchy, but we have to, we have to be better guardians of those within the fold. Are we going to keep this losing people, not just from our church? They end up becoming sons and daughters of hell because of the, the hurt and the pain that they experience in church. Those wounds open up places for demons to reside if we don't do our due diligence. So I'm, I feel a little passionate about that because I've just heard way too many stories and I've seen way too many people become antichrist because they were not protected. That's ultimately what happened. Um, and so they feel like not, they don't feel like you didn't help them. They feel like God didn't do what he was supposed to do. And ultimately we, we stand and we represent and we just got to do better with that. But I'm not going to beat that horse to death. I just think that we got to take care of business so that we can stand as an authority and represent the most high God by judging righteously and meeting out righteous judgment among ourselves. Amen. 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 All right, guys, I think that's that's a a wrap on for the culture. We're going to go ahead and transition over. um, We're going to go ahead and transition over to our next segment for the show. And I will toss it over to Jonathan, the Congress. All right, everybody. Today on the Congress, we're going to discuss voting. We want to discuss voting. Uh, We'll start off just looking at uh, ever since the last uh, general national election, there has been a huge conversation around voting, the practice of voting, protecting the sanctity of voting, um, and as they would say, re- maintaining in our, our democracy and the way we conduct our business. Um, there is a, I believe that in our country, there is a majority that believes there should be some type of voting reform. If On both sides, there's the uh, more strict laws for voting, and then there's also those who feel like that voting should be expanded. Right. It should be easier to be able to vote. And there's this push pull kind of going on in Congress right now about basically the next identity and what voting looks like going forward. So I just want to point out a couple of things that have happened since January 1st of this year. There have been 18 states that have passed um, voting laws that restrict voting access. Or on the same time, there have been 25 states that have passed laws that have expanded access to voting. When we're talking about restricting access to voting, we're talking about things like mail-in voting and having to identify when conducting mail-in voting. Um, Drop boxes, how many drop ballot boxes should be out for early voting. 
how long should early voting be allowed? Um, so we have different states that are passing things to limit those aspects and want the more traditional, you know, person go into the ballot box, show their ID, press the thing instead of having all of these different options. And on the other side, you have people who want to expand it. They want more robust mail-in voting. Um, they want more drop boxes for people to have easier access to voting. They want longer, earlier voting. Uh, we know a lot of that stuff came about since the pandemic happened with taking precautions to protect people. Um, but a lot of people want those type of things to stay around. So the first thing I kind of want to kick to you all is, what is your perspective on voting as it is now? Do we need more restrictive voting? Um, is it too wide open? Was it a real issue in the last election? How do y'all feel about voting as it stands now? Now, I was just going to ask, um, why would people be opposed to expanding access to voting? And maybe that can be answered later on after everybody says their piece on it. But I, that's my question. Like, unless there is a belief that it's not secure or that it's not uh, as um, valid as coming in face to face, why why restrict access instead of opening it up? Uh, that I don't I don't understand. And then the other thing I was going to say is so there's on the other end, some people don't even believe their vote counts anyway. I know that's another thing. Um, but yeah, that's my initial response to that. I just have a question about it. Well, I think that um I'm I'm probably on the side of more restrictive voting, but I think that even the walk-in process, like hand voting, I think that should be done away with too. I mean pieces of paper like are we why are we still doing that i think that if you're a citizen in the united states you have a social security number that you should be able to register at a site and cast your vote like that and that way we're not relying on like uh people hand counting votes and papers not getting lost because i did see in the last election no matter who you voted for we saw numerous videos on social media where people were finding ballots and trash in the river all kinds of stuff like Whoever, I'm trying to be steer clear of taking a position on voting, but however you feel about voting, we know that there are things that go awry with the present way that voting is done. As always, maybe they say, well, it's not enough to change the way, change how the vote came out. Um, that's neither here nor there. I think that we should have been been done away with paper voting, walking in and, and writing in. I think you should just be able to register yourself and do it do it that way. Okay. All right. That's good. I, I, I would have to agree with that. Um, but to answer your question, Terrence, why would there be more voter restriction for the things that Sheree just pointed out? There's a lot of people and it would lean more of the conservative side that feel that um, there, there was a lot of fraud that went on in the last election via um, people stuffing ballot boxes. Um, there's been some accusations that dead people have voted. Um, there have been some accusations that people have mailed in votes and nobody was able to verify if it was really them or not. Um, they're even against like there was in some states where they just automatically sent mail in ballots to individuals. And there are some people saying, well, that's that doesn't need to happen because anybody can get that mail in ballot, fill it out and things of that nature. Um, and so you're trying to limit and tamper down fraud. But at the same time, this was stated uh, by the. Um, Department of Homeland Security, I want to say this was the uh, most secure election that we've had in the history of our country is what they said. Right. And so when you have almost 45, 50 percent of the country that says, you know, the vote is not secure, is not safe. We need to do more. And then you have another side that says, 
Well, you're just trying to limit the amount of people who can vote because the more people who vote are not going to vote for your side anyway. That's why you want to limit it. Now you have this kind of push-pull that's going on. Um, and then the other thing is we also have the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that has been that has been discussed. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the big premise in it, because of all the laws that have taken place since the since January 1st, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act would basically curb the amount of changes that could be made to voting laws in the future. It'll have to go through the Department of Justice, which I definitely agree with. I don't think politicians should just be willy-nilly changing laws for voting after each election because it'll never get, no one will ever be satisfied with something like that. No, I agree with that. I think that that um that needs to be in place. There should be some some type of guardian to how the process is or how it's changed because we know that there are biases and stuff built into those laws that they try to put in place. And they generally impact specific demographics more than others and things of that nature. So, I think that um having the justice department be a part of it be a part of at least overseeing how it's supposed to go. I, I feel conflicted saying this because I'm like, if the Justice Department works how it's supposed to work, I think that they will be a good guardian for that. That's let me but just it say changes with the administration anyway. So I mean, it's the same thing. It's like <laughs> But I will say I think um the one thing that we do need to be mindful of, and I think we'll get into a discussion on this at some point in the Congress, is like identity politics and how things are shaped toward individuals. Because we have these changes that are going on and they're like, this is like Jim Crow 2.0. And any of us who know anything about Jim Crow know this is nothing like Jim Crow and the things that went on in Jim Crow when it comes to voting. I mean, requiring somebody to display an ID you know, it's not the same thing as just simply not letting them vote or putting in like a literacy test or something like that. Those are totally different things. And so I think we need to be mindful of the way these things are presented to us. We kind of got to get through and sift through what is going on and what is in these these laws. Um, because my initial reaction when I first heard about it, I'm seeing Jim Crow 2.0. I'm like, these people are going crazy. What are they trying to do? And then I go back and I read up on what's going on. It's like, well, if you want to send in a mail-in vote, you need to be able to identify yourself in a matter of days after you send it before it's counted. That's not Jim Crow, right? But they will have you believing that these people are just wiping people off the ballots and things like that. So I am a proponent of expanding voting. I think voting should be convenient. Um, I think a lot of people are busy. I also think, you know, we're talking about securing voting and every one vote should count. We should have a national voting day where everybody's off work so they can go vote and take care of that issue. So we won't have to have all of these different procedures and things in place. Um, but I feel like also that, you know, politics creates more problems or problem creators than to do problem solvers. So nobody's really trying to fix it. They just want to argue about what's going on. Yeah. I mean, for me, I know I could spend three to four hours out there standing out there voting. Uh, and it's crazy. I was like, you know, we are, we should be more highly advanced. So I definitely like that idea about uh, being on a secure site and doing something like that. Um, but I wanted to speak, I want to go back to my question and speak for the people. I know some people out here who have this thought, like, does our vote really count anyway? Is the vote really, is my individual vote making a difference? And of course, we hear the, the comeback and, you know, people died for your right to vote. 
and um, yes, your vote matters and you don't have an opportunity or you shouldn't speak on anything that is political that's going on if you didn't vote, even though you're a citizen and you pay your taxes. But the fact that you didn't vote, you don't have a right to speak to what's going on wrong. So does the vote matter um, in your estimation? And do you feel like that the idea that some people feel like it doesn't matter, does that play a part into... Um, does that play a part when you start talking about the laws concerning voting um, and whether it should be expanded or restricted? Um, I'm a person who really believes that, like, when it comes to voting, um, I'm not, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't participate in every election. I really don't. Um, there's some things that I would say, especially being in the South, I live in you know, Mississippi right now, and so it's a lot of things that's going to the ballot that I would look at it and go, even if I go and cast the ballot for this, it's not going to make a big dem- a big difference because of the demographic that I live in. And then there's other things that are very, very important that I do know that I need to go out and vote for. But I'm also not one of those people who, I don't beat you over the head with the people die for your right to vote, because I also feel like people die for your right not to vote as well, right? It's not a one-way street. And I'm also not under the, you know, if you didn't vote, you don't get to complain. Well, if your vote didn't win, do you still get to complain? How much more did your vote matter and whatever you voted for didn't come to fruition besides me not voting? I think we're in the same boat. Um, so I'm not one of those people who kind of beat voting down people's throat. I think it is an individual choice and people have their own reasons for it. Um, that's one of the conversations that I do want to get into it with you all about how, from just a Caden perspective, how do we view voting? How how much engaged should we be in it? I know that evangelical Christianity is very, very, very heavy in the politics, like very heavy in the politics. But um, that's not the typical, I guess, experience that a Christian would have. So, you know, you're getting extreme when you look at that. I really would like to know, like, what do you think about the kingdom's perspective on voting? How much does that really matter? How invested should we be in it? And maybe we can get into it a little. I know that question came a little late in the segment. Maybe we might have to touch on it later on. I don't know. I know I threw a bomb on y'all at the end. I always say that we should be in either position. Uh, we should either be praying, protesting, or positioning. Um, I think that if you choose to participate in your civic civic duty by casting a ballot, okay, that's fine. But I think that there's so many other things that we could be doing as believers um, and, and I think that if you're going to participate in any voting, please do it on the local level. That's really what I where I think that it really makes mm-hmm. the greatest impact. Um, that's I'm I don't want to. Hey, listen, guys, don't come for my head. I'm not really trying to be on the presidential election right now because, <laughs> you know, I go all the way in on that. But I'm saying that what what can you do in your community to make a difference? Because politics, when you get down to it, is really about the people. And the people that you can actually touch and influence um, and help bring make a difference for where you live, that's really what's going to make up the difference. If you're doing where you live and the next person doing where they live, next person and so forth and so on, that's how we impact change. It's not going to be magic because one person took one seat and we already see how that goes anyway because the one person has the seat, but they're not even really the power. You know, they're, they're the face of the power. They're not really the power. So... Um, our, our government has a very unique structure. And so I would just say, focus on your community and working within your community 
Um, even if you're saying I'm not necessarily going to get involved in politics on a grassroots level, are you volunteering? Are you helping out your school? Are you helping with fundraisers? Are you participating in different things like that? I think that where that's where it starts because we are um, we are supposed to love our neighbors. I think that that's on the basic level of showing demonstration of love your neighbor. And I think in the Bible, uh, the king, the kingly role and the priestly role kind of they go together. And so the our our world made a separation of church and state. That was not how the Bible had it. You know, the church and state married each other. The prophets informed the kings and vice versa. And so I think that spiritual people do need to be um, interacting or, or making change in the civic world. It's just that you have to determine what your role is, what God has gifted you to do um, and how how involved you want to be, how much education you want to pursue in order to go further into that. But on a basic level, you can help in your community. Yeah, the only thing I would say on that, and I agree with that 100% um, in terms of kingdom perspective, I would just speak to how we vote from a kingdom perspective. I don't see how you can have a kingdom mentality and be stuck on one party. That's my personal belief on that. Now, I know that there are believers in the Republican, believers in the Democratic Party, but I, my mindset is, I, I like what Dr. Tony Evans said one time, he's like, uh, we, are a, we are kingdom citizens we should be the referees and these two parties are duking it out, but we should be judging in between them. And so I like that um, analogy because it's all based on the issue. And I think that if we vote based on the issues and seeing how we see the glory of, of Yahweh coming in um, more um, expediently and efficiently in this particular on this side, then I vote that that side. I vote that. So I think that even if we do choose to be a part of a party, we should not be so stuck on the party in our voting to where we actually lose our minds and don't and we can't see the corruption that's on in in both parties because it's corruption on both sides and there's agendas attached to both sides and that's why we have to I think we should have the mindset of staying in the middle and not being so joined to the party that we can't vote against it when we see that particular issue um it's necessary to vote against it based on what it is so that's my contribution to the mindset as far as kingdom involvement in the voting process i like that i like that that referee um because you do know politics is it's a fight um and then the i think one of the sad things about it is that, you know, so much of the faith gets attached to either side of the fight, depending on the issue when, you know, we shouldn't necessarily be in the fight. We should be refereeing the fight and trying to bring some type of insight into what they're trying to see, some type of clarity, because when you got two sides duping it out, there's going to be a very much of a lack of clarity. And I feel like we, Kenan Perspective, should be the ones to bring that clarity to those things. So I do think that's a beautiful way to look at our vote. If you are going to participate in voting, uh, that's a beautiful way to look at it. Uh, not really being in the fray, but trying to be above the fray. Yeah, and I just want to throw out there one additional thing, um, just for believers to take into consideration that we're we're never going to legislate righteousness from our biblical worldview or our worldview, um, especially in a democratic place. Because I mean, I'll just say it like this: if we can if we can vote in and legislate our view of righteousness, then so can any other faith group. And so we have to take that into consideration. We deal with people. That's what we do. We we interact with people and allow the spirit to convert hearts so that righteousness can flow through the land. 
it ain't going to necessarily flow through the laws. So just keep that in mind and, you know, don't, don't be discouraged by what laws say because the law of God has got to be written in the heart of the person that is living it out. That's what it really boils down to. All right, guys. Well, I think that's uh, the end. Uh, we have definitely uh, built on the Congress today. Uh, we'll get more into those conversations as we see things come on the horizon and um, keep, keep building and talking about that. We're going to go ahead and go to our next segment for today. And um, I think this is going to be good. We're going to continue on in our discussion on the prosperity gospel. I'm going to turn it over to Terrence. Yes, good people. It's time to unroll the scroll. We've been talking about the prosperity gospel. We've been talking about some of the historical uh, foundations of it. And we've been talking about some maybe not so recent, but fairly recent uh, applications of it. But today we're going to talk about some of the common sentiments about just the prosperity gospel movement, as it is called, maybe even some criticisms of the prosperity gospel. What I want to do first is kind of just point out, and I've been listening to a few different people, pastors, teachers speaking um, about why the prosperity gospel is a dangerous gospel, why it is a false religion, why it's, a, it's another gospel, and just lay out some things that have been said, and then we can chop it up a little bit. One of the criticisms of the prosperity gospel is that Jesus did not die to make us materially wealthy. He died to make us right with God. So I'm just putting out some statements that said, that's a statement. Jesus did not die to make us materially wealthy. He died to make us right with God. Uh, the second one is poor people give their very last due to the deceptive teachings of the prosperity movement. And so, in other words, the, the criticism is that poor people are brought further into poverty because they're following up these teachings from the prosperity movement. We'll go back into them and discuss them um, in a moment. The third one is the prosperity gospel is a distortion of real prosperity. It redefines prosperity as material wealth. Material wealth is not a part of the message of the gospel in any way, shape, or form. This is one of the criticisms that I heard. Material wealth is not a part of the message of the gospel in any way, shape, or form. And another one in, is that material wealth is not evidence of righteous living. The prosperity gospel is a different religion because it presents material wealth as evidence of righteous living. Uh, another one, we should seek treasures in heaven and not expect treasures in this life. And then the last one I'll bring out, many people think money is evil. Money is evil. All right, so let's go back a little bit and I'll just open it up and see what y'all think about that. What do you think about this statement? The first one, Jesus did not die to make us material wealthy. He died materially wealthy. He died to make us right with God. And Jonathan, you can hit it up first. All right. Um, just with that statement, I would have to agree with it. Um, just in my readings of Jesus, Jesus didn't die wealthy, right? He died spiritually wealthy, but he didn't die like a, a materially wealthy man um but at the same time i don't think you know we're not supposed to be wealthy either like there's a something negative or evil about 
having wealth or accumulating wealth and having things either. So I would agree with it in the sentiment of like Jesus did not die for us to be wealthy. That's true. Um, but I think that the connotation could lead people to go to to suggest that within the death of Jesus Christ, that he wasn't also warring for destinies. And I think that Jesus died to secure destinies and some people's destinies required them to have wealth to do what they're assigned to do. So I think that that I think wealth is within the realms of the things that he died for. But his specific reason for dying wasn't so that all of us could be wealthy, because I think that that would be a farce. Right. That's on point. That's good. I like that. He he died to secure destinies. That's good, because then the other thing is, why would they make the argument about why he died? Because he didn't just state that he, you know, why he died. He stated why he came. He said, um, why did Christ say he came? He said he came to destroy the works of the devil. All right. So now we have to look at what are the works of the devil? And I, it makes me think about the first work that we see in scripture where he deceived Eve and Adam joined up with that. They ate of the fruit. And then what was the consequence of that work and how he cursed the ground so that it wouldn't yield good fruit, uh, yield fruit easily uh, for them as they worked the ground, which speaks to a state of living and prosperity. There's a lot of things that Christ came to do. And just because he didn't necessarily die to make us all wealthy um we know that he came for other things um not just in his death and so i think that the critics the critics um always make it a salvation issue or how they say it's a it's a salvific issue in other words they make it seem as if the people who teach prosperity are teaching it as if that is proof of salvation and but I don't see that. I don't see that it's um, been taught as proof of salvation, though I do see at times where it's taught as proof of maturity. And that we might have to deal with that a little bit later. But they say if you mature in God and you understand his teachings and you understand his principles, then you will not live poor. So that's that's another thing. Um, and then also, I think that even when we talk about um destroying the works of the devil. Another thing that comes to mind is, is greed not sin? Um, so to address greed in people that would hinder people from being cheerful givers or giving to good works or, you know, different things like that. Is that not sin that needs to be addressed? Does it not hinder us from kingdom, from giving to kingdom initiatives? Does it not hinder us from giving to those kingdom initiatives that, he would want us to give to and should and how would that be addressed if um someone is not talking about giving money and, and kind of like pricking at the hearts of the people who are um who are stingy with their money so that that was one of the other things anybody have anything to say about that or we'll go to the next one i, I just also want to point out the scripture in deuteronomy eight eighteen. it says but remember the lord your god for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he sports to your ancestors. So I think that that's, that should be taken into mm. consideration that, you know, as a part of a covenant, uh, a covenant with God, um, being given the power to get wealth is a part of that as well. So 
I think that people need to pay attention to that too. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Another thing that comes to mind when you're talking about that, I think about when Yahweh was bringing Israel out of bondage and his desire was to bring the children of Israel into a land flowing with milk and honey and to a prosperous place. And then he also, um, in Deuteronomy 11, he talks about he promises material prosperity as a reward for for obedience. And he says, if you obey my commands, and he talks about all of the blessings and the, the promises that would be, um, and I think he used it as an incentive to obey. Uh, he used it as an incentive to be, to to live upright, that you would actually receive a reward in this life because of that. Uh, Jonathan, you had something? Oh, or Sheree. Yeah, I think you, you made me think about something when you said Israel, because I remember when Israel came out of Egypt, when they were leaving Egypt, Egypt was supposed to give them all of these fine things. And, and, you know, and we know eventually those things were used to build what they were supposed to build. And so it kind of goes to Sheree's point about he allowed you, some people are supposed to have those things to be able to carry out their assignment and their mission. I think he displayed it. Yahweh displayed that beautifully with Israel. They're like, why are we getting all these things? And then you come to find out where you're going to be building great things with these things, representations with these things. So he made that provision so they can have those things to do it. I think that's good. That's that's good as well. And, I, and another point I guess I should point out here too, when, when you you alluded to it, when you talked about Israel, that God is, God wants what is extended from him to represent his glory. He likes things to be glorious, to look glorious. When you go into the kings and even Israel as a nation, being one of the smaller people, having such an abundance and being a strong nation, that was important. So I think that even now when we come to this time, this time, when people are assigned a certain measure of material resources, that wealth has an assignment. It has a purpose. It has an intention behind it to reflect the glory of God. Like, I mean, what would he, what are we reflecting if we all in poverty? You know what I'm saying? So I think that's to be considered. And I'm not saying that everybody should be like, you know, a hundred billionaires, you know what I'm saying? Like nothing like that. I'm just suggesting that, um, God likes things that to reflect him, you know, that belong to him. And see, that's a good point when you say that as far as reflecting him, because my question would be to them, will poverty exist in the new heaven and the new earth? You know, if we talk about the ideal and we talk about his kingdom and manifesting his kingdom, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we see um, poverty existing? when Christ returns. And if it will not, then why is it here now? Is poverty um, not as a result of a curse? As Is it not a, as a result of the enemy doing something to disrupt what he originally intended? And so if that's the case, then it should be a part of the teaching when we're educating people in righteousness um, it's, it's principles of stewardship. Now, I do believe that the way the prosperity gospel is communicated, that it communicates a lot of times uh, covetousness, greed, and the way that they do the fundraising, all that, you know, it's great to call those things into account and to deal with that because, but that's a different issue uh, as far as how the uh, preachers are getting money 
uh, for the churches or for their ministries, that's a different issue than dealing with the idea that Yahweh wants his people to be blessed and to be prosperous. And I think that goes that leads us to the next thing, going back to this one where it says, poor people give their very last due to the deceptive teachings of the prosperity movement. What do y'all think about that? Um, I would uh, agree with that in context. Um, I can remember being a young man thinking about, you know, in church and thinking about how many people were giving and faithfully giving that you would see and, you know, thinking about there's a lot of poor people in here. A lot of people are giving it. It's supposed to be prosperity and giving it, you know, and I'm thinking there's a lot of poor people. And so that kind of gave me a different perspective on tithing and offering as I got older. I had to kind of go back and, and look and research things because of just my perspective, just being young and just associating the amount of people who were giving in church and then the amount of people who were still kind of in poverty because we know typically that, you know, poor churches have poor members. And so no matter how much they give, the, the environment is the same. They're very limited in their resources. But if you're de depending on, you know, God to come through because you're giving and I'm not, and I'm seeing these people in the same place I had to, you know, I struggled with that. I really did. Yeah, I I find it extremely gross. <laughs> I ain't gonna lie, that bothers me a lot. Um, I remember being somewhere and they would say things like, "If it doesn't, uh, if it doesn't fit your knee, it must be a C." Like to insinuate, like let's say your <laughs> if your water bill was two hundred dollars and you had one seventy five, well, you don't have enough, so you might as well give to the church. Like stuff, you know, encouraging poor stewardship. Uh, you you'll see somebody faithfully giving for. 30, 40, 50 years, but they die in poverty. They got to do a GoFundMe to, you know, do the funeral service, like stuff like that. I'm like, this is gross and negligent. And this is not, this is not righteous. This is not God to do that. Uh, you're misleading people to think like that paying tithes and stuff like that is some type of spiritual lottery where eventually you're never going to get called and the windfall is coming to you. It's just, it's kind of nasty. I, I don't like it. So, so it makes me um, read, I want to read this short, passage here in Matthew 12 41 and it says and it's talking about Christ and it says he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny and he called his disciples to him and said to them truly I say to you this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So when you think about that scripture, uh, what do you think about that? Because some would say that that is him affirming, hey, give all you have, even though you're poor. And in doing so, you will be blessed because um, heaven will look at that as you gave more than the people who just gave out of their spirit, their their, um, their abundance. And so it didn't really hurt them. It wasn't a sacrifice because many times that's connected to the plea to give. It's a give. It should hurt you. You should give till it hurts. It's, it should be a sacrifice. Um, so that could be an act of it's demonstrated as an act of faith. Any responses to that? I, I don't think that that I think that that would be an exception, not the rule. Because that's that was a circumstance. One, we got to take into consideration uh, the context of what why they were given in that time frame. You know, um, this was not like a free will offering situation. And then two, um, 
Two, we don't see that that's something that Jesus regularly encouraged. That was just a one-time scenario. And I feel like we try to build um, whole lifestyles and philosophies and uh, principles and that we make into laws off of like a one-time scenario in scripture. I don't think that Jesus was encouraging someone to give um, everything they had all the time. I don't think that was that was the context of the scripture. That's good. That's good. Um, so and you had something, Jonathan, or are you good? on that one i'm good i agree i'm good yeah so moving on to this other one um material wealth is not evidence of righteous living um what do you believe about that statement do, do you believe that someone who's practiced good stewardship understood the principles of not only giving but also um diligence in work um, and maybe some other principles that could be brought out concerning money. Do you can you not see how someone attaining uh, a big house, uh, maybe multiple nice cars, that that could be proof that they are actually practicing the principles uh, of faith and stewardship, and that how that could be attributed to um, maybe uh, evidence for how they walk with God. Definitely, definitely. I, I could definitely associate that with evidence in your walk, depending on, as you said, you pointed out some ways that they they were able to accumulate those things. And the method that they use is a direct representation of their walk. And so if they were able to obtain those things as a direct representation of their walk, then absolutely that is evidence. But that is not one of those things that's all the time. It's not a blanket, you know, you know he's walking good because he's wealthy. Now I I don't think that's a blanket statement at all. Yeah, I I definitely think that um a person's wealth can attest to that, but I think I mean we don't know. I mean we've seen stories where people might have come to Christ later in life, but before that they was they was a dope boy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so they they had they had money and turned it into some type of clean job, clean situation where they could take that money and flip it. I mean we've seen lots of things people. Uh, doing, how should I say, people selling the gospel uh, to make money. I mean, I see people do a lot of things to make money in, in the faith community that are not necessarily leading to show like, oh, this person's mature. They just know how money works, which is a very different thing. Yeah, no doubt. I think one of the other things, too, that people get upset about is that they see the people preaching the prosperity gospel living a certain way. And they see the congregants and everyone else. Uh, you may have some other high rollers with them, but they don't they don't see that comparable to the congregation. Um, and so basically, it just seems like the only one profiting from this message is the person preaching it and taking the offering. Uh, but one of the things I would say that a lot of people don't give credence to is that you can have a preacher that is an entrepreneurial spirit. They could have an entrepreneurial heart. They could be very studious and, and, and very shrewd in business. And they may have their own businesses. They may have other stuff going on. So a lot of times there is an assumption that you're living like this off of the offerings of people. And not that you're just taking a modest salary and then you're taking that money and maybe investing that money. Or maybe you started businesses off of the income you have just like other people do in other businesses. And so there's an assumption that if you're living rich, um, then you're living rich off the people. And then there's also an assumption that all that money that's coming in is going to that preacher 
and not going to other works um, and the works. I believe that if the work is big, if they're actually an international ministry, they're raising up schools, putting up schools in, in different countries and building wells and, you know, doing all kind of things to create economies for different people and helping feed the poor in different places. Yes, the money, the offerings are going to be great, but that doesn't mean um, that that's going to one individual. So we would have to, before we um, assign that uh, fault to them, we would have to show and prove that they were negligent, that they were exploiting the people. So there's a lot of assumptions that go on when it comes to that. What are your thoughts on that real quick? Yeah, I would say um, that kind of leads into like what we were talking about earlier with accountability. There's a lot of association and assumptions that comes with pastors and when they look a certain type of way that they're stealing from the church because of a lack of accountability that people see in their lives throughout the churches. So it seeps through and how they, you know, view different things that are going on. And I think a second side of that is one thing that I wasn't aware of. I think most believers probably aren't aware of unless you came up in the church or you're involved in church business is the church business. There's actual it's it's actual business that goes there. As you said, like there's salaries that are there. There's different um, stipends and things that are put in place for them. And a, a lot of people don't recognize that stuff. They're counting pockets and not even realizing what they're counting because they just don't even know what's going on behind closed doors. And that's one of the things to where I don't know when you have a congregation who is contributing. I don't know how much. Um, they should know about those type of conversations and that stuff that does go on so that when something doesn't look right, they are aware so they don't make those assumptions. And I don't know like how much that ain't really your business. Right. You don't you know, that ain't, you ain't going into the boss's office at work and saying, hey, what's going on with all this stuff? So I think it is a a, a, a balance that I'm just that's a word that I'm not aware of personally. Yeah, I think that's uh this area is another one of my pet peeves in terms of like just general conversation. I'll, I'll probably jump into a conversation on social media when I see stuff like this, like people just making the assumption that, you know, pastors are stealing. Um, I do think that the accountability factor has to be there, but you know, like you said, I, I think that there are many pastors that are bivocational that have had, you know, they might've had a whole military career, all kinds of things prior to becoming a minister. Um, and even in the context of them becoming ministers, if you have a person in any profession that goes to school and gets a master's degree or a doctorate degree and they are on a staff doing any type of work, they're anticipating some type of salary that would, you know, represent the time they put into preparing for that job or being trained for that job. But not only that, like the responsibilities that that job holds. And so if you're part of a ministry where the resources are available to, to have a salary, that should be reasonable. But then there are some pastors who are part of churches where they don't have enough money to pay a salary. They don't take they don't get any offering stipend or anything like that. They're paying part of the church's bills out of their own paycheck. But nobody has those conversations. And I think it's it's unfair um, to make those assumptions. And, and on the flip side of that, I've been to churches where they have public business meetings once a quarter and all of the church is invited so that you can literally see all the line items how the money is spent because ultimately the money comes from the people in the pews. And so the way those churches works, works the way those churches work is that they feel like if the people are giving the money, they should be made aware of how the money is being distributed throughout the church so that nobody has any questions. And I've seen that, that that does a lot to 
basically, you know, calm any unnecessary tension, especially when you have a, a large jump in, in membership and the church is bringing in a lot of money. Like they could just assume that, oh, the pastor now, he's getting an unnecessary amount of money because more people came. But if you were able to see the line items, the salary was agreed upon for a three or five year time span. So um, things like that, I think those things are helpful, but I think it's also helpful for those who participate in church um, to take into consideration that even you sitting in a pew with lights, air conditioning, running water, bathroom, tissue, all that stuff that you don't have to think about, think that that all costs money. Like it costs money at your house and that has to be provided for and somebody has to do it. So take all that into consideration. Be a benevolent giver when you if you go to a church and if you don't go to a church, nor do you give to a church Stay out of the conversation. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Before we end this segment, I just wanted to say one thing. Stop quoting this thing wrong, that um, that money is evil. Stop it. That's not what the scripture <laughs> says. It, it's never said that, and y'all, y'all, y'all get on my nerves with that. It's, it never said that money is evil. You know, you see all a lot of the patriarchs in the scripture flowing in money. It said it's the love of money that is the root of all evil, the love of money. And so that's dealing with covetousness and greed. That's not dealing with money. And then the other thing I want to say is that you do want to look at the difference between how a lot of maybe Caucasian evangelicals um, raise money and take offerings and then how a lot of black people or even Pentecostal people take offering. It sounds like you, you, you treat people like slaves. Uh, nobody wants to be talked to and fussed at and, and screamed at y'all not giving enough money, whatever. That's another thing that creates that a hundred dollar line. Then once they take the money, um, then you want to, um, surprise them with another offering and tell them that we're not going to leave this part because this is warfare right here. We're not going to leave this part until y'all give a certain amount. All that's usury is exploitation, and that's what gives a bad rep to, you know, honorable and charitable giving. You need to stop that. As we understand that we're citizens of the kingdom, we are not going to tolerate people fussing at us, whether it's about how we worship or fussing at, fussing at us about how we give. That's not going to work anymore. We're going to end up abandoning those spots and go to a place that, that knows how to treat us with dignity and respect. So that's all I wanted to say about that piece. That was a good segment, y'all. I, I love that build right there. Um, the prosperity gospel. I would just say this. The gospel of peace is the gospel of prosperity, and prosperity is not a bad word. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Man, it's so much more to say on this topic. It's so much more to say. I don't know, Terrence, you want to stretch it one more it week? We, we can do a tithing. part four on this because okay. we ain't really dug into tithing and, you know, biblical giving and mm-hmm. how we really supposed to look at that. Like, we, I think we we would do a disservice not to break Let's that down. Let's do it again. Reasons. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. We're going to hit y'all with one more part of this. God willing. We're going to hit y'all with one more part um, just to make sure that when you come away from this conversation, not only do you understand the difference between the prosperity gospel and greed, but you also understand the Bible's model for giving and how it's supposed to be done in our present time. And so that we could be on track with the most high and allow for him to use us in this capacity and allow it to flow back into our lives the right way. All right, guys, I think we have definitely unrolled the scroll. And like I said, we're going to leave it open on the table so we can come right back to it next week. All right. So 
Mm-hmm. Having said that, we're going to go ahead and get into our last uh, couple of segments. We're going to go ahead and move right along. What's good? What's good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to tell you what's good. It's it's God is doing great things around us, and we would be remiss to just like ignore the things that we're seeing or to not bring you good resources when we see them. We feel like they'll be beneficial to you. Good art, whatever, whatever we think is dope. We're going to make sure we share it on this on this broadcast. I'm going to let Jonathan share um, his good resource to you first, and then I'll come back to you with another one. All right. What's good? I want to highlight Dr. Esau McCulley today. I came across him. I was looking at a book um, he released last year. It's called um, Reading While Black, talking about reading the Bible uh, while black. And I got interested in the book and I started to watch some of his interviews. And he was speaking just about how we read the Bible as a community. And where you are, the people you're around, where you grew up kind of affects the way you interpret things within the Bible. And he's talking about how different communities get different things out of the Bible and how it's important to have those communal discussions about what did you see? What did you get? What are the different communities to get to get this total picture of the Bible? And I thought that was so good because we're at a time to where we're in such an either or kind of society either you're like this or you're like that either the bible's this or it is that either you should read it like this or you should read it like that not taking account that it's so rich you know we can pick it up and read the same things and get so many things out of it and then when you're thinking about how many people in, in different communities are getting so many different things about it it just kind of creates this beautiful conversation about the word and what it means and what it can mean and, and just different aspects that you can get out of it so i was just like you know Check out Dr. Esau McCulley. He has a couple books out. Um, I think he would be an enrichment to a lot of people. That's what's good. I'm I'm definitely going to check that out. I don't have that resource. I think that that brings up a good point, too. You really can't do anything outside a community. That's not how God designed you. So make sure you plug into a community, uh, especially in terms of spiritual development. I mean, but just for life, you know, you, you should be able to have people that you're walking with and doing things with. Don't be an island unto yourself. It's not healthy. It's not good for your your mind is not good for your spirit. Be connected with like-minded individuals so that you can grow. And then also add some diversity to your group so you can have that good, uh, some that good friction that produces growth in you as well. Um, but I'm going to also drop a what's good. This is actually just some good news. I'm I, This was such a blessing to hear. So there's a 45-year-old man named Joel Castone, and he is the first uh, elected commissioner that is incarcerated in the in D.C. I want to say the state, but D.C. is not a state um, in the district um, of D.C. And this is pretty much not never heard of, even though the law allows for it to be so in D.C. You can run for a public office while incarcerated in their, you know, in their local government. I thought that was amazing um, that this is happening. And most, you know, most people that run they tend to not engage with their constituents, at least not all of them. Whereas he had a small uh, constituent base and he represents them directly because they, they consist of like a women's shelter, a couple of prisons, and then like maybe a one area block where it's a upper echelon neighborhood that he's never been to, but he can represent the, the, the concerns of those people on the commission that he is a part of now. And I just thought that was dope, but even more so dope, uh, Mr. Castone, uh, while he's been in prison since he was 18, he's serving a 27-year bid, which he gets released in December of this year. He'll come home as a politician. Um, while in prison, he developed a uh, a program to mentor um, inmates when they came in 
teaching them how to trade um, and invest so that they can put their families in a better financial position while behind bars. He also self-taught himself uh, four different languages, which he also helps to teach that to other inmates. I mean, like this brother really allowed this time to rehabilitate him. Um, and even when I read that he fostered in his relationship with God, um, he spends his mornings in worship and, you know, just setting himself focused on God. And so I just give God glory and honor um, just for the transformation that he's made in Mr. Castan's life. Um, and I just look forward to seeing how God is going to use him from this experience and transitioning back into, um, you know, just the free world and being able to navigate and make a difference in politics. Throwing back to what we said earlier, you can get involved and do something in your community, even from behind bars. That's that's nothing short of amazing. And only God could move somebody to do that. That's amazing. Um, so shout out to him. That is what's good. All right, good people. We're going to move right along to our final segment, uh, Words to Live By. And I'm going to throw it to uh, Terrence, who's going to bring it to us. All right. We have the word to live by today. One of the things that I want to introduce you to is a principle in the scripture, which I call the boomerang effect. Um, it's coming from Matthew 7, 1 through 5, where it says, uh, don't judge lest you be judged. And most people stop right there and they think that they should not have, that people shouldn't have a judgment about things. Because um, he goes on to say, you know, uh, you're trying to basically take a, um, why won't you remove the log out of your eye before you try to take the speck out of somebody else's eye? Um, and he talks about how the same measure of judgment you give to others will come back to you. That's the boomerang effect. But with the 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 inspirational part in that is to say, it's not that we shouldn't judge. We should just be ready to receive that same measure of judgment back. So in other words, don't judge beyond your level of righteousness. Don't judge beyond your level of scrutinization. So if we know that we aren't able to handle that level of judgment, we should apply more mercy, more grace to that because we know that boomerang effect is coming. Why is it coming? The reason why he does it is not so that he would condemn us, but that he could prove to us and prove to others that we are righteous judges, that the thing that we speak and that we say, whenever it comes back to us, we can uphold that same measure of judgment that we uh, meted out to other people. So that's the boomerang effect. It's something to remember. Don't judge beyond your level of righteousness because you won't be able to withstand the same criticism that you give other people. However, if you are walking upright in righteousness, then you will be able to remove the speck out of somebody else's eye because you've already removed the log out of your own. That's the word to live by. Grace. All right, good people. That's the word to live by. And this has been another great episode, great content, great conversations. And we pray as always that these conversations will bring uh, edification to your life. We pray that you will continue to extend these conversations in your spaces and places with your family and friends. And then we also want you to bring back to us the things that the points of views that you have or things that you would like for us to discuss on the show. Um, again, we are building up our social media um, following right now. You can check us out on Facebook and Instagram at the high culture podcast. And if you desire to hit us up, you know, just via email, you want to bring a point to us, the high culture podcast at Gmail. We look forward to hearing from you. And we'll be here again, same time, same place next week. And I'll leave you like I always leave you. 
You might mind your manners. You might mind your business, but don't do anything without considering the mind of God. It's the High Culture Podcast, and we out. High Culture, get up on that kingdom life. Get up on that kingdom life. Yeah, get up on that kingdom life. High Culture, get up on that kingdom life. Get up on that kingdom life. Yeah, get up on that kingdom life. Young men to see your visions and old men.